know exactly where we're, we're at, but we've been working through the book of Deuteronomy. We just got that started a few weeks ago. And uh, it's been an interesting uh, study so far, I hope, for, me, for you as well as me. But uh, there's a lot of lessons in the book of Deuteronomy. And today we're going to look at a lesson uh, that we're going to, as we learn about the saga of Sihon and Og, you know, like who's Sihon and Og? They're two kings that we're going to learn about in a moment. So our main text this morning is going to be Deuteronomy 2, uh, starting at verse 26, and then chapter 3, going through about the middle of the chapter. So just to give you a little background, because I know some of you haven't been with us for the first part of Deuteronomy, uh, in this section, Moses has been recalling to the people of Israel the time that they have spent in the wilderness. And he's recalling it to them because this is the younger generation. It was their parents who now have died off that did not enter the promised land and had to wander the desert. So Moses is recalling to them what has happened and what's transpired up until this time. Now, at the time that he's recalling this, they had already taken some of the land, and that's what we're going to learn about this morning. Um, but they had not yet entered the, the promised land across the Jordan. Uh, so I just want to go back to the verses 3 to 5 from chapter 1, just to remind us that this is the, gives us the timeline of when Moses is saying this. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying. So that's right before we get to what Moses is saying. And as we've gone through the last few weeks, we've worked our way up until here. Now, we know that Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land, that is, the land over the Jordan. But here we see, as we read today's passage, he got at least a taste of the Lord's giving of the land. Because Moses was still with the people when the kings, Sihon and Og, were defeated. And then their land ultimately becomes the land that's given to the tribes of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh. So an important point here is to remember, because sometimes we remember a lot of what we're Remembering from these Old Testament things we learned in Sunday school, we just always remember Moses never went into the promised land. This is good to remember that at least he got to see part of the promise. He didn't get to get to the good land beyond the Jordan, but he at least got to see the beginnings of God's promise being kept. So back to our context. Here is Moses still recalling the history of what has happened to the people from their time in the wilderness until the present time of this history, which is after they defeated kings Sihon and Og, and before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Last week, we observed how God had told the Israelites to leave alone the land that he had given to the descendants of Esau, that is the Edomites, and also the descendants of Lot, that is the Moabites. God was faithful in his promise to them, And therefore, he kept Israel from taking any of their land or harassing them. 
And we saw that God is faithful and God is sovereign. That was our lesson from last week. So now we get into the story of the defeat of these two kings. So that we're calling it the saga of Sihon and Og. And I'm going to read the whole narrative and then we'll go back to pick up some important lessons that are contained in there for us. So this is starting at Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over, to the, go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right or, nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of, of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, so that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have, given, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land." Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time, and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as a spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Arior which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as the Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God has forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides many, very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. 
So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edrei, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bud of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. All right, so that's a lot of narrative there. We're going to look at the beginning here at King Sihon. Okay, the first thing we're going to note is the promise God makes in verses 24 and 25 to Moses. He says, I have given your, into your hands Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon and his land, begin to take possession, and then he'll put the fear and the dread of, people, uh, of them on the peoples who are under the heaven. So God has already stated that he's given Sihon into their hands. And when God says he's done something already, even though we haven't seen it done, we can depend on him that it is already determined, that it is going to be accomplished. Moses has seen God fulfill many promises already, and he trusts God's word. Moses then knows ahead of time what God is about to do. His trust in God's faithfulness and that God will complete what he says he will do. His great assurance that if he is is obedient and faithful to God, then God will surely do what he said is admirable. We can admire Moses for this. But partly we also know Moses learned his faithfulness about God's faithfulness sometimes through his own mistakes. In this case, Moses doesn't usurp God's authority. Now, he already learned a very critical lesson, a very um, high-impact lesson for Moses when he was in the desert, when God said to speak to the rock, but instead Moses did what? He struck the rock. And God still caused water to come out of the rock, but God basically told Moses, you didn't do it my way. You didn't follow the instructions. And now you're going to learn a very tough lesson because the discipline you will receive is not, for not following my instructions is that you are not going to be allowed to enter into that promised land. Now Moses has learned that God will do what he says he will do. And it is simply our job to obey. So now Moses has a choice. He's been told by God that Sihon is given to him. He could simply go in as a warrior and take it all, or he can do what we see him do in verses 26 to 29, which is, Moses says, I sent messengers from the wilderness to Kadamoth, of Kadamoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. Basically, he's saying, look, I'll even be a good customer for you. You can sell me food. You can sell me water. We just want to go through. So Moses knowing that God has already given this land to Israel, he still offers an opportunity to King Sihon. So that's part of our lesson there. Just as Abraham trusted God to provide a sacrifice as he went up that hill with Isaac, just as Joseph trusted that his dreams had a meaning that God would reveal, Moses knew 
that God would give this land of Sihon to the Israelites. But from the perspective of Moses, he's going to do it ethically and honestly as possible. He wants to be sure that it's not said about, of him that he didn't give peace a chance. So, however, just as the flower children of the 60s learned that just because we hold hands and sing give peace a chance, there are evil people in the world and they don't serve God and the offer of peace is not accepted all the time. But Moses is going to give Sion a, a chance for peace. But Sihon would not do this. Verse 30, it says, He would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. This language may sound familiar to you, especially if you've studied the book of Exodus. And because we see the similar language about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I've known a lot of believers in my time that have really, really struggled with this concept. They say, well, that's not fair. If God hardened their hearts, how could they be held responsible for their sin? Well, there's a few points we consider when we look at this. One is that in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of Og, we aren't talking about sinless men who had their innocence destroyed because God hardened their hearts because all are born into sin. Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. So from our very beginning in life, we have a nature of sin. So God isn't taking some innocent person and corrupting them. In fact, we know that God does not tempt people, Scripture says. People really tempt themselves and others. God does test people, but he, and he allows testing, as he did with Job. But neither Pharaoh nor Sihon can stand before God and say, you hardened my heart, so I'm not guilty. The question is not that. But could we say that God made them worse sinners than they already were? Well, no, we, we couldn't say that either. So what does it mean that God hardened their hearts or hardened their spirit, And as King Og says? Well, it could be a passive hardening, what I mean by that is that God's Holy Spirit is a restraining force against sin in our lives and in the world. Absent of the Holy Spirit's restraint, sin would be completely unchecked in our world. You think it's bad now? You see a taste of this in the pockets of our world today and throughout history. What happens when God removes the restraints against sin? The sinful become even more sinful. So we have examples from Scripture clearly of that. And we also have some examples in world history as well. How do you explain some of the worst murderous people in history? How do you explain the cold, calculating murder of someone like Hitler or Pol Pot or Vladimir Putin? God sometimes removes the restraints against sin. Now, why does he do that? In the big picture, God is seeing to it that he will ultimately get glory over his enemies. 
Enemies of God will get the justice that they deserve, whether you and I see it or not in this life. Rest assured. You either get justice or grace from God. Part of the grace is the restraint of the Holy Spirit that keeps us from being even worse than we are. But ultimately, when we grapple with questions such as, why would God harden the hearts of some people? We must be careful that we don't question God in an unfaithful way or in a way that reflects our distrust of his goodness that is worked out through his sovereign choices. Paul wrote to the Roman church about this fact that in the end, we just have to trust God that he's doing the right thing because we can't always see. And so Paul wrote this to the Romans. And this is a longer passage, but I want you to have the whole context. He's writing about the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. And starting in verse 10, it says, Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had nothing done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills and hardens whoever he wills. You will say to me then, see, Paul is predicting the argument. He knows what you're about to say. You will say to me then, well, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As he said in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, and only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So if we're tempted to say, as we look at a story like this, how can God find fault with Sihon? Remember what Paul said. Who are you, O man, O woman, to answer back to God? Remember, God is sovereign. He is righteous and he is just, and he's not one or the other at any time. And the God who is sovereign, righteous, and just hardened the heart of Sihon, 
king of Heshbon, just as he did to Pharaoh and just as he has with others. In the preacher's commentary, it says, the Old Testament steadily refuses to see any inconsistency between human freedom and divine sovereignty. And in the Expositor's Bible commentary, it says, it is said of Sihon that the Lord God has made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate for the definite purpose of placing him into the hands of the Israelites or to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. This may account for Moses' initial peace offer to Sihon. He was sure that the Lord would in his own way give him victory over the Amorite king. The attribution to the Lord of making Sihon stubborn and obstinate without mentioning mediate or contributing circumstances or persons is not an uncommon procedure in the Old Testament. Sihon, by his own conscious will, refused Israel passage. Yet it was certain that God would give Sihon's land to Israel. So Moses offered his peaceful terms, even knowing the ultimate result. So in the end, who gets the blame for this defeat? Well, Sihon chose to go to war with Israel, but God chose to give the land to Israel. So the outcome ultimately was already decided. And then we see in verse 32, Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured from Arior, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you not draw near to all the banks that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, wherever the Lord had forbidden us. You may wonder, what does devoted to destruction mean? And when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 7, we're going to get a little more deep into that. Because this is another one of those topics that sometimes people are really bothered by. But to give a very brief explanation for now... Uh, and realizing we're going to cover it in more detail later, this is what is often referred to as holy war language. A holy war is a war that God ordains and is considered to be in the fight himself. God is in the fight, okay? And we see in the language of the temple that devoted things are things set apart for God. So we see that sometimes God ordains that all blunder is devoted to him, He doesn't want his people to be tempted or steered away from holiness by those things. In some cases, we see he forbids the survival of any living thing and the total destruction of all property, all livestock, and everything. One thing does not burn, and that is metal. So usually metal things are devoted to God that are the plunder of war are given to the temple, and they could be melted down and used, but they are made holy, or in other words, they're devoted to God. In this case, livestock was kept as a spoil in the plunder of the cities. And before we move on to King Og, which is the next part of this story, I want to point out one last thing, which I think is pretty ironic in this story. Let's look at verse 36 again. It says, it gives the the places, and then it says, there was not a city too high for us. There was not a city too high for us. 
Not a city too high for them. They conquered them all. Now remember, this is the younger generation that Moses is speaking to. They had no skill in battle. This was their first battle, really. They only had their faith in God. But what did the older generation say about these lands? The older generation who had seen all the miracles of God in the Exodus. They said in Deuteronomy 128, the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Remember, they exaggerated a little bit. And now we see that their younger generation proved that those cities were not so out of reach. And the sons of Anakim are a giant people. Now let's look at Og, who was a literal giant of a king. Starting in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 3. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. Again, we see this contrast between the older generation who said the cities were too high, the enemies are too great, but the younger generation went in and defeated. These cities, 60 cities, had walls, gates, and bars, and then many smaller towns and villages as well, all of them taken by Israel. And we finish this part of the narrative with some information about King Og. He was a remnant of the Rephaim, the giant people. And it seems that his sarcophagus, which is translated bed in the translation I read here, was maybe a tourist attraction or something. It says people could come and see it. It was nine cubits long. And from uh, Deuteronomy, an introduction and commentary, they said this about, about this. An interesting detail is here preserved about Og. He was the last of the Rephaim, that is, so that, strictly speaking, he was a descendant of the original inhabitants of the land and not an Amorite. On his death, he was buried in a massive sarcophagus, literally bedstead or resting place, made of basalt, called iron here because of its color. Similar large sarcophagi have been found in Phoenicia. According to the record here, the sarcophagus could be seen in Rabbah Ammon, the modern Ammon at the time Deuteronomy was committed to writing. Its dimensions are given as nine cubits by four cubits, or 13 or 14 feet by six feet measured by the common cubit. So if we allow that the sarcophagus probably was at least a couple feet shorter than the body it contained, he was still at least 10 feet tall. And the average of height, by the way, I looked this up, of a man in that time and in that region was about five foot five inches. So to the men of Israel, he truly would have been a monster. Even today, if a 10-foot man walked through into the sanctuary right now, we would all look in amazement, even those of us whose mothers taught us not to stare. 
we would be like, whoa, this, I'd be looking at them at eye level from up here. So we have just enough time left to wrap up the aftermath of the defeat of Sihon and Og. So we'll read from 11 to 22 now. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left in the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his, oh, I read that part already. Okay, when we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites, the territory beginning at Arior, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, the half, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities, the rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is all the region of Argob, Argob I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, Jair, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maccathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Jair, as it is to this day. To Machar I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and to the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also with the Jordan on the, as the border from Chinnereth, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah and the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel, only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. So we see here that Moses gave some of the land to the Reubenites and the Gabites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And now they were to prepare for entering into the land uh, across the Jordan. And so the men of valor, that is fighting age men, were to cross over while they left their wives, little ones, and livestock behind in the fortified cities where they would be safe because they had, what, eliminated all of the competition. So they would leave them there while they went across beyond the Jordan and took the land, and then they would go back and bring their livestock and their wives and children back. And finally, they're reminded once again of how God fought for them. So they had no reason to fear when they crossed the Jordan. There are so many lessons in this narrative today. I had to just pick and choose a few. But we see throughout the sovereignty of God. Again, this was last week, that was our theme. He's sovereign in salvation. He was sovereign in hardening the heart of Sihon. He is sovereign over the land. And he continues to be faithful. We see that the new generation of Israel have the faith to go and fight and receive the blessings of God because of it. And we see that the cities were not too strong to fall under the hand of God, as the previous generation had thought. In fact, that's part of the irony of this whole story, is that they spent 40 years wandering because they didn't believe God could do what God eventually did with the younger generation. And we see that God wants the people to remember 
the things that he has done so that they would have the faith to continue to serve him in obedience. May we learn the same lessons in our lives. God is sovereign in our lives. He is faithful and he is just. And if we have the faith to follow him, he will be with us. And we must also remember that the things he has done are to remind us constantly of his faithfulness so that our faith will increase and be ever-increasing in our lives. Even if times get tougher, we can't forget what God has done, both through Scripture, throughout human history, and throughout our lives. And those we know, to share those testimonies gives us strength to go on. This is why we share our stories with each other. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning.